good afternoon and welcome to Embargoed. Um, our episode today is going to feature a guest host, um, Tom Stocker, who is at Pinson and Mason's uh, working in export controls and sanctions and all things white collar law. Uh, and he's out of the Edinburgh office in, in, um, in Scotland, but also works out of the London office as well. Uh, we are going to have a, a, a Russia-focused episode um, because that is the, the the current times and the current hot topic in sanctions issues, and we hope to talk about a number of issues related to, to Russia, um, but we're going to start with the topic of multilateralism. Um, and I have to say, I, I wanted to start with this topic in part because I've never seen anything like it. I mean, and, and I, I think the main question that I have is whether it's the new normal, but before getting to that, I mean, I think we should just kind of lay out the case for it. Um, what what caused us to start thinking about this was the, the the price caps, which we'll talk about, or the coming price caps, which we'll talk about later, which were completely coordinated among the allies. But generally, the Russia sanctions have been more coordinated than anything that I've ever seen when it comes to the energy sector, when it comes to the the related export controls, when it comes to um, the financial sector that was targeted initially, there have been um, coordinated actions with respect to the accounting sector, with respect to quantum computing. And so I just want to throw it out there, Tom, is this the new normal? And kind of where do you see this headed in terms of the coordination among allies on, on Russia sanctions policy? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of unprecedented, isn't it? Because um... It used to be the case when we dealt with sanctions that they originated from the United Na from the United Nations, so it was real proper uh, multilateralism. That's now a, a thing of the past, uh, and we're dealing with uh, really the the G7 nations plus the EU um, acting in in concert and uh, liaising very closely together. So yeah, I think it is the new normal. I, I think we are beginning to to, to develop a, a new uh, grouping of the uh, G the G7 plus the EU um, that will con that will probably in other areas of of interest um, adopt a similar model going forward. And I think that's probably most relevant to to China if anything ever happens in that part of the world. No, I think that's a great point with respect to China. And I think you know one of the things that it's made this easier um, in terms of multilateralism lateralism is that the the EU and the US and and a lot of the kind of NATO countries the NATO allies have seemed aligned on this foreign policy when it comes to China the interests are a little bit different but on the other hand, I mean, I think if you had asked people a year ago to talk about the possibility of, of multilateral sanctions kind of holding for the first six to seven months with respect to Russia, there would have been a lot of talk about whether Germany was going to yeah. um, go along with this. And it did. So I guess I guess that is that is, you know, it, it does remain a possibility, even with a country like China, where there's not a lot of there's some consensus, but I think there's definitely some areas of disagreement between the U.S. and China. You know, I, I uh, Germany didn't just go along with I, Germany have exceeded all of my expectations. I, I would have said to you that I, I, I said of this that the sanctions will be pretty limited because it's not in the European Union's interests, and uh, the European Union has imposed sanctions that are far wider than the UK has imposed. Uh, so really significant packages of, of sanctions have been imposed at the EU, EU, EU level. We are beginning to see some dissent. So um, uh, there's some dissenting voices coming out of Hungary, as you'll be aware, but also um, now Italy. 
but but as a whole, they do seem to be um, holding the the party line uh, and to say the sanctions that uh, the EU has implemented in many ways are contrary to their national interests um, and have been really very significant. Yeah, that's what's been really interest, interesting to me is that Germany's economy, I mean, to oversimplify a bit, seems to have been built on the the, the idea of cheap Russian oil. And so, you know, having having imposed sanctions in this area and seen the price go up and the more, the, 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 the higher, the, the, the stronger the sanctions, the more the price could go up, although we'll talk about the price caps in a few minutes about whether whether or not they'll work. Um, you know, it would seem to be almost the thing that would be the most antithetical to the Germans to actually impose some really tough sanctions on Russia and and have that consequence. But the Germans have held. I mean, is that I, I guess out? You know, not only in the Russian con- context. You know, will do you think do you see that holding? But more generally, I mean, one thing that I've noticed from from the outside is that that both the UK and the EU have imposed sanctions and and in a way that we haven't seen from over here. I mean, it really did seem before the Russia program that the US was the main sanctions enforcer in the world and that the rest of the countries, while they would have sanctions, sometimes they went along with the US sanctions. They weren't imposed nearly as aggressively or and they certainly weren't enforced as, as aggressively. And at least in my experience, overseas companies didn't take them as seriously when they were their own sanctions as they did with respect to US sanctions. But that I, I, that has been completely different in my view, with respect to the new Russia sanctions. I think that the the enforcement climate and then the compliance climate overseas looks to me to be higher than I've ever seen. And I'm wondering if you think that'll last. Uh, yeah, I think it will last. Um, dealing with the UK, uh, first of all, we're, we're not the military might we once were, but we have a historical view of ourselves as having a as having some global influence and i think as a matter of foreign policy the um the the politicians and the civil servants are, are keen on on sanctions uh, being used as a as a foreign policy tool uh, and for giving britain uh, a seat at the international table uh, and i think the eu are of a similar mindset um uh, and as a result we will continue to see sanctions being used as a as a foreign policy tool at an EU and a UK level. Um, there's no doubt uh, the UK uh, Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, OFSI, um, is modelling itself on, on OFAC. Uh, they want to have uh, a regime that is similar to the US re- regime. So they're issuing FAQs, they're issuing general licences. All of that is entirely new. And, it's, and it is because they're looking across the Atlantic at how the US do sanctions and thinking that's how we should do it. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's developing okay. pretty quickly. I think the big interesting uh, aspect will be enforcement. The reason um, often the EU blocking statute relative to Iran and Cuba, frankly, gets ignored by um, European and British uh, companies is because they're absolutely terrified of US enforcement risk. And I don't consider uh, at the moment companies are terrified of UK or European Union enforcement risk. That might change, but not currently. Well, and I think that it's a progression. So, I mean, one of the things that I've seen, and it sounds like, you know, this is happening in, in the UK as well, but I've seen it over in the EU and particularly in Germany. You have these enforcement agencies and you have the regulatory agencies now starting to issue guidance of the sort that OFAC has now been issuing for years. Although, I mean, when you look at the history of OFAC, 
it really didn't start until after September 11th in 2001. I mean, the agency was around, but the real enforcement and the real guidance and the real yeah. kind of professionalism of sanctions started then. And it seems like with the Russia sanctions, what you're starting to see is you have that same sort of thing that happened with respect to OFAC, you know, in, in about 20 years ago is happening certainly in Germany, because, you know, my experience in Germany, particularly with the blocking statute that you mentioned, is that it just wasn't taken seriously at all. I mean, you, it, I had clients who would actually try to go in and get licenses to, you know, go, the, to, to, to violate the blocking statute and were told by the, the German enforcers, why are you asking for a license? Just do what everybody else does and just kind of say you've got a business reason to ignore, yeah. to, to, to stop your business in compliance with U.S. sanctions and, and leave us alone. And now it seems like they're putting out guidance. Now, you know, there's been some hiccups, as I understand it, because one day they'll put out guidance and then the next day they'll put out guidance that says the opposite thing and withdraw yeah. the last one. But but I think that's to be expected. I mean, and, and so, you know, I think we will... It, 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 if, the, if the progression follows and the commitment is there, I think that we probably will start to see EU and UK regulators. Although to me, and, and let me ask, this is a question, it, the UK seems a little bit ahead of the EU on this stuff. I mean, is that your sense? Um, yes and no. Um, so I think there are some EU, remember the, the EU um, issues uh, legislation that applies to all member states, but the enforcement of it is a matter for the member states so there's there's inconsistency amongst the different countries within the within the eu um with the with the uk um there is now a dedicated office within hm treasury focused on sanctions and they are they are undoubtedly wishing to increase their capacity so they are they are recruiting at a significant level and they're upskilling their um, their existing staff. Um, they're also engaging out uh, outside professionals to assist them with professionalizing their operations. Um, and they're doing some quite interesting things. So I think it's a matter of public record that uh, uh, Offsy issued a, a, a tender um, to engage a forensic accountancy firm to um, conduct a, an investigation effectively into assets um, owned and controlled by something like 1500 um, Russian nationals and businesses in the UK. And I think it was Ankura who secured the, the project. And you have to stop and say, well, what, why are they doing that? Why, why are they doing a, a, a significant exercise at significant cost to identify the assets of Russians living in the UK? And it must follow that it's because they're looking to, I think probably firstly uh, support the designations because the, yeah. that some of these designations are going to be challenged and are being challenged. But secondly, to start recovering assets um, in the UK. And I think that there's a, an indicator that enforcement will follow and it will be very much focused on uh, Russia. And and in terms of asset recovery, how does that work in the UK? Is is that OFSI's responsibility or is that something that another agency does? Because here in the US, OFAC blocks, but that doesn't get them the yeah. assets. It just freezes them. If you want yeah. to actually seize the assets, DOJ is actually the... the the yeah. group it, that does that and we have this like uh, cryptocurrency task force or klepto task force that is going after oligarch assets but it's in doj yeah it's the same in the uk so it's um the national crime agency have set up um a, a dedicated task force but interestingly it's it's offsi who are have engaged the 
forensic accountancy firm to undertake a, a you know a review of of the of the position. So they're they're clearly wanting to have a a seat at the enforcement table. Although when it does come to enforcement, it gets passed to to another agency. And and on, do those agencies historically co- coordinate? Because OFAC and DOJ, I, I think the coordination is sporadic at, that, at best, at least historically. How how about OFSI and and the National Crime Agency? Well, it's all quite new. Um, so OFSI have a civil enforcement power, um, and uh, you can make a voluntary disclosure and, and enter into uh, a. A civil, a civil penalty with them in lieu of uh, being prosecuted for a criminal offence. And that's how most enforcement will be uh, uh, undertaken against British companies that, that breach the sanctions. Um, when it comes to asset recovery or criminal prosecutions, then that will be passed to the NCA and ultimately the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, my impression is that they are liaising uh, very closely and that there is a collective uh, prioritization uh, of this as an area of of enforcement. I, I you know I still think um, the the action any action that we'll see is probably going to be a year or two years away, inevitably because these things have a long gestation period, as you know, Tim. Yeah, no, I think that's the way that it's going to be here in the United States as well. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of the enforcement actions yet. I think that the the task force here is trying to identify assets, trying to identify people who will cooperate with the task force and providing them information that could allow them to bring um, court actions that would result in the seizure of the assets. Because, you know, from from the perspective here, that. OFAC's ability to actually block someone requires almost no process at all. So essentially, they block someone, and 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 you can correct me if my, I'm wrong. I, my understanding is there is a a pretty vibrant process that allows you to challenge designations in the in the UK and yes. in the EU. People win those, at least from the outside. That's what it looks like. With OFAC, the process is much more truncated. I mean, you have to go to OFAC first. They can take months or even years just to look at your um, designation or your your delisting petition. And and they have some obligation to provide you the record of designation, but it's very minimal. And usually, you know, when you go to OFAC to file the delisting petition and you ask for the record to so you can supplement it, what you get back is something that, you know, will be so heavily redacted as to be pretty worthless. And so the the, the OFAC process is, is not all that helpful. The court process has been not particularly helpful either, though better, because usually if the case goes to court, you'll start to get a little bit more of the record and find out actually the, the real reason for the designation. But the U.S. courts defer to OFAC's designation process so heavily as to make the challenge very difficult. It looks easier in the UK or the EU, but that might just be me seeing you know, the winning cases and not seeing all the losing ones. Uh, yeah, but there have been a number of successful challenges to designations. Um, and it's partly because when these designations have been put in place, they've been rushed. Um, and they're actually based on very little evidence. You know, they're, they're quite often based on public records, uh, adverse media searches, rather than actual concrete evidence, which is possibly why we're seeing OFSI undertaking this this exercise, really to try and back up its position. Um, but the courts aren't as um, sympathetic or as supportive. They will, uh, to the to the regulator, they will expect to see that the designation grounds have been met and that there is um, reasonable evidence 
to to support a designation and if there's not it will be overturned so we do see um, successful challenges through the uk courts and also the the european courts and that's in, in the us that's i think where the 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 asset forfeiture and seizure seizure process will come in i mean seizing the assets is not that hard you can do it ex parte but to actually forfeit the assets and get title to them requires a court case in which the government has the burden of proof and so so that those are the sorts of cases they don't get brought very much quite frankly because there's not a lot of um, asset forfeiture that's done um, or has been done historically with respect to to sanctions issues um, but when they do get brought they're actually hard cases for the government to win if they're contested and so I think we'll see you know on 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 your side of the Atlantic it seems like there's actually due process in the designation and the challenging of the designation process we don't see a lot of that on this side of the Atlantic but what we do what what I expect we'll see and we'll we'll find out is if these some of these um, forfeitures are challenged that there is a lot more process that is available in that that's that area and maybe we'll start to see decisions that look like the eu and uk decisions yeah I, we're going to see a lot of litigation around this because the 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 value of the the money and the assets that are at stake are you know, really very significant right i mean and that's that's really that's really the you know what's happened in the u.s side is either there hasn't been a lot the assets aren't all that significant or when they are significant there's really no obvious um, company or person that's going to show up to challenge them because there's not a lot of presence in the US mm. but I suspect um, you know that will be different for seizure of Russian assets in the UK and may even be different for seizure of Russian assets in the US yeah um, well let's talk a little bit now about um, price caps because uh, those are coming, and it, it, the G7 finance ministers meeting in September, September 2nd, the G7 announced an intention to impose sanctions that would involve price caps on Russian oil. And on September 9th, uh, OFAC came out with some preliminary guidance on what those caps would look like. And at least from the US side, it appears that the way that they're going to be enforced is there's going to be a ban on maritime services being provided in connection with Russian oil. So there'll be a general ban, but then there'll be a general license that allows those services to be provided if you can meet certain conditions. And basically those that condition will be, you'll have to be able to that the oil was purchased below a certain price, which is remains to be set, and then you'll have some sort of um, compliance obligation to keep records of that and basically be able to prove it over the course of the next five years. Um, so it looks like it's the, the 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 devil is in the details in terms of what the price caps are going to be, and then the enforcement is going to be relatively. Um, tricky because it's going to create all sorts of record keeping burdens that may be tough to comply with. But that that's what it looks like on on the US side. I mean, from the UK and the EU side, Tom, I mean, what are you seeing on the, the price caps and, and what's being said over in the UK about them? Yeah, um, the US is slightly ahead of us uh, on this, Tim. So um, there was statements made um, after the 2nd September G7 meeting, but we've not seen any um, guidance issued from OFSI or the, the European Commission. Interestingly, in this area, uh, at an EU level, this um, will actually mean perhaps a reduction in sanctions because the EU has a, a ban that comes into effect from the 5th of December or, um, uh, relating to uh, financial assistance, which would cover 
um, uh, financing and insurance of um, uh, Russian origin uh, oil and petroleum products, um, in, including where the supply of those products is to third countries outside of the European Union. Um, so they, I would anticipate the EU regulations going to have to be amended to put in place this cap, price cap mechanism. Um, it will be quite a significant, significant development from a UK perspective. Um, and that's uh, important because uh, I think I'm right in saying that the UK remains the one of the largest markets globally for insurance and uh, reinsurance because of uh, Lloyds of London, a very uh, significant maritime uh, shipping insurance uh, market um, based in the UK. And under the UK sanctions um, from 31st December, uh, there is a, a ban on the provision of um, maritime insurance for oil imports into the UK, but it doesn't apply to third countries. Um, so this price cap mechanism um, will, I think, be very significant. Uh, now, as you say, the devil's in the detail. What's the what's the price going to be? There is some um, some indications that it, there might be multiple different levels of pricing. So it could be like all of the sanctions issues, extremely complicated. Um, and um, I think one of the big issues is going to be, uh, will uh, countries um, who are at the moment importing oil from Russia get on board? Uh, you know, I'm particularly thinking about um, uh, the likes of India. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's really, so, so I, what, what I was going to ask was a little more narrow, but I think let's go broader. So from the, from the EU, UK, and then even kind of India, China, I mean, what are the various competing considerations in terms of what the price cap should be? I mean, I think there's going to be some countries that are going to want the price cap to be um, extremely high uh, because they want to import more oil and they realize that if the price is low, there's probably not a lot of incentive for the Russians to, to sell it. Um, whereas there's going to be other countries that want the price cap to be extremely low because they're oil producers and it'll be fine if, you know, if, if Russian oil is essentially drying up because the price cap is so low, they'll be able to sell more of their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. so from the, I mean, is there, is, is there a kind of a united front on this? How is the EU breakdown on it? And then, you know, com countries like India, will they comply and what do they, what do they think the cap ought to be high or low? Yeah. So I, I I'm getting the impression there is a united front at a, at a G7. So UK, US and EU um, level, I think they've got to be really careful about unintended consequences um, because I, I don't think anybody looking at the, the sanctions regimes can say it's been effective in terms of um, uh, really harming the Russian economy while not harming our own economies. Um, and I've seen, I'm sure you've seen as well, Tim, with your clients, you know, really quite significant um, uh, harm to business and employers uh, who you know, one day were trading legitimately and the next day they discovered their entire business model was, un was unlawful. <laughs> um, at the same time, Russia has continued to be able to sell its oil to um, China, India um, and elsewhere. And this does seem to me to be a pretty novel approach. It's almost like um, US secondary sanctions in disguise being applied by the, by the UK and the, and the EU. So we're, we're, we, we don't have the concept of extraterritoriality in the way the US does. 
But here we're effectively saying um, that we we are going to apply our sanctions outside of the UK and outside of the EU to third party countries by blocking them effectively from the insurance market. I think that's a really significant development for, for the UK and the EU. And um, I do wonder if it will be challenged through through the likes of the the, um, the WTO. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it, it is a big, I mean, it's, it's kind of the American model of this. I mean, the yeah. US um, has a much broader view of extraterritoriality and the way that it enforces it is, you know, with, it, it's pretty easy for the U.S. with respect to, to U.S. nexus transactions. The EU has traditionally taken a much smaller view of this, but this is to the extent that this is going to be a restriction. If, if the EU follows the same model and the U.K. follows the same model where there is a ban on related maritime services in connection with Russian oil, I mean, you're talking about transactions that almost inevitably will take place outside the the territory of the eu and the uk um by 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 definition and so it does look a lot like the secondary sanctions i expect there probably would be a requirement here of a nexus um so for example if it's a but but it'd be pretty easy to meet if you're talking about uk insurers for example and and even beyond that i mean if the transaction at least from the u.s model the transaction were in pounds or if it were in euros Um, that's probably going to be enough as well. And and the thing is, if you think about how the um, reinsurance market works, so you might be able to insure um, through an insurer based outside of the US or the UK and the EU, but you'll want to reinsure that um, that contract. Um, so uh, and that will inevitably bring in place um, insurers within our jurisdictions. So I think it it could have a very significant impact on international oil trade um and then there'll be a big issue about um uh circumvention and russian oil going through third third countries um so uh, yeah i think it's going to i think it's be big i think they are um blazing uh in terms of the kind of the escalation of sanctions this seems to be what this seems to be it uh this is where they're where they're going to go and maybe it's a model that they'll use in other uh in other areas yeah, I, I, it seems very targeted. I mean, it, it you know, but it's it will find out if it'll work because it seems like they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? I mean, they want to sanction Russian oil without driving the price up of of oil generally and Russian oil in particular. Um, you know, I, I I think that that is a that that is really the 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 model of the future if it works but mm. but boy i see some you know real problems with respect to the price setting problems with respect to compliance problems and and the compliance issues you know from the us side the compliance issues i think are pretty straightforward because it's just going to be a matter of do companies think that the record keeping process is worth it it's something that they've seen before they'll probably be able to figure out the compliance issues and make yeah. a call on that i think from com- for companies that aren't used to kind of extraterritorial sanctions 
um, generally. So like a UK company that's not used to dealing with UK extraterritorial sanctions, I think there's going to be another part to that process where they actually have to have a learning curve just to realize all the sets of circumstances in which these sanctions could originally apply and then figure out whether or not they're going to have to, whether they want to um, actually go through the compliance burden. But kind of the issue spotting up front is a little bit different because US companies are used to that. But non and 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 to be fair, non-US companies are used to that with respect to US sanctions. But I don't no. think they're used to actually trying to anticipate in extraterritorial effects with respect to UK or EU sanctions. And we'll see how that plays out. But I yeah. think it's going to be a compliance nightmare. Well, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and this is a I think this is something that the the regulators don't yet understand. That uh, you know, unlike Iran, which was nice and simple, um, the Russian sanctions are so multi-layered um, and there are nuanced differences between the, the positions of the UK, the US and, and, and the EU that creates real complexity and uncertainty that many companies I think will say, unless this, is, unless this development is kept really simple, I think many companies will say, look, this is just too complex. It, it is unnavigable. We cannot figure out uh, with confidence uh, how to comply with this. Yeah. So you I, might I, find gold plating in the market effectively drying up. And how confident are we that this is all going to get done and kind of agreed to by December 5th? I mean, they've really set a line in the sand with respect to December 5th. It's the day that um, the U.S. general license with respect to Russian energy expires. And I think the, this new regime is supposed to take place. But I mean, we're now at, at September 23rd when we're recording this. December 5th is coming up pretty fast and they haven't even agreed to the to, to what the price caps are going to be. And as we've discussed, that's going to be pretty complicated. And then once you do that, I mean, how do you get the, 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 the OFAC document is about eight pages, but there's still a lot of questions that I had after reading it. And that those, that's not much time to hammer out those questions here in the US, much less in the EU and the UK. Yeah, um, I think they will hit the deadline. I mean, they might be a few days late, but They'll be there or thereabouts. Um, there is a there is a really unfortunate practice developing of issuing a law that's not complete um, or hasn't been fully thought through, um, and then the guidance that uh, is there to build upon and explain the law it doesn't come out for six, seven, eight weeks. Yeah, I, and and to be fair to to uh, I know that they've been thinking about this a lot longer than the announcement. I mean, I was the, I was talking to folks from OFAC over the summer, and they were already kind of working on price caps and kind of letting people know that price caps were coming. So it is something that they are not just you know that they have been thinking about longer than just September. But I, I still think that the the difficulty is going to be thinking through what you said, the un unintended consequences, and then also coming to an agreement on what the cap is going to look like, because there's so many competing interests here. I mean, you know, as you said, the, 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 much of the EU and the UK are not importing Russian oil at this point. And um, so you know, in the U.S., we have an oil import ban, and the the guidance on the caps was very clear that that's not going to change the import ban. And so, you know, it's one thing to impose these price caps from the U.S. side when you're not even going to import, import the oil at all. It's another thing when this is actually an important part of your economy. And I think there's a lot to hash out with respect to that price because there's it's not just a matter of picking a number. Yeah. And you have to be careful that what you 
don't do is lead to the development of a, an entirely new insurance market for the non-G7 nations of the world. And, you know, we've seen that a little bit with um, um, the, is it the uh, MIR payment system that's been developed in Russia as an alternative to Visa and MasterCard and Gulf states, Turkey have been have been support have been supporting that you have, you know you have china tr looking to uh, um, move away from us dollar trade if we end up uh, in a situation where we're encouraging a, a a really a new insurance market i'm not sure in the longer term that's a, a, a necessarily a positive development no, it's a great point, and it's what we've been talking about for years over in the U.S. is kind of when does when does the rest of the world reach the limit? The U.S. is basically the, the entire sanctions policy of the U.S. is driven by the idea that cutting companies off from the U.S. dollar and the U.S. financial system is such a strong hammer that uh, they'll be able to enforce these sanctions, and they won't it, it won't essentially dry up the market for US dollars. But at some point, and I think we've started to see it with respect to Iran and 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 as you mentioned, even with respect to Russia, where they're creating their own financial system and trying to link it up with China, we might have reached that point with the US financial system. If you start trying to use the UK insurance system um, or insur you know, the UK insurance system is the same sort of tool, do you get to the point where China and Russia decide, hey, there's a market here for um, for shipping insurance that yeah. that the UK can't meet because of the sanctions. Yeah, yeah, so. I think that is the that's that's the risk. So, I say I'm afraid I don't have anything I can tell you as to where the UK or the EU are on the on the on the price cap. We haven't had the, the same guidance that's been issued by um by OFAC, and hopefully it'll it will follow in the next couple of weeks. Great. Well, why don't we turn to the last main topic here, and that is quantum computing. So in the last, at around the same time that the price caps came out, the U.S. came out with uh, two uh, new uh, two new uh, announcements with respect to quantum computing. The first was that they uh, targeted the quantum computing sector as a sector that is now um, subject to U.S. sectoral sanctions, the way that um, executive or 14024 is 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 phrased the secretary of the treasury can designate certain sectors that become subject of the russian economy that can become subject to sanctions and now the quantum computing sector is subject to sanctions um, and in the same way uh, there's another executive order one uh, 14071 that allows the secretary of the treasury to designate sectors that are subject to special us export controls and so now the quantum computing sector is going to be subject to special us export controls as well um, or heightened export controls. There's basically a licensing requirement that didn't exist before. And so so basically what is going on here is really kind of my question. And I, I have some thoughts, but I, I'm, I'm anxious to hear yours first. Yeah. Um, I, I, this might be an area where the UK and the EU are actually slightly ahead of the US, possibly. Um, so uh, I think it was back in April uh, that uh, the quantum computing uh, component software technology was added to the UK um, prohibited list of exports. Um, likewise, the EU has prohibited um, the, the export of uh, uh, quantum computing software and uh, components since uh, I, think, um, I think it was the 8th of April. Um, we also have a prohibition on related technical assistance, uh, financial assistance and brokering, so arranging trades 
in those um, goods and services uh, for the destinations Russia. And um, there's a more general dual use ban applicable to the, um, the Russian Quantum Center, so the International Center for Quantum Optics and Technologies that's been in place since, since April. Uh, so the, the, the actual trade restrictions that have been put in place by the UK and the EU, I think, are perhaps under underappreciated. They are very, very extensive. It's a long, long list of goods that cannot be exported to Russia. And if there's if you're if the item is on the on the export control banned list, then you also can't provide technical services or financing related to that um, to that trade. Uh, so it is already, I think, quite significant. Um, and I think what we're beginning to see is is two things. They're looking now at what else can they ban um, because there, there is such an extensive list already in place. And secondly, we're seeing a real tightening of the licensing regime. So up until uh, this month, we were seeing licenses being granted for Russian trade. Uh, so dual use equipment, yes, you would get a license if you had a pre-existing contract. You could bring yourself within one of the one of the licensing grounds. We're now seeing the licensing licensing authorities exercising their discretion to not grant a license. And in some cases, you know, the reason for it is because it, it could further Russian um, the Russian military. And these are fairly anodyne dual use items. You know, they're 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 really nothing to get that that really you know on a proper fair analysis could enhance the the russian military so there's definitely a tightening of the of the licensing um policy and it's far harder to get a license for this sort of stuff these days yeah i mean that's one of the th we haven't seen it yet with the quantum computing issue but that is one of the things generally in terms of licensing and in terms of just general both sanctions and export control policy is that um russia is being treated a lot more like in, from the u.s perspective say iran where yeah. the answer is presumptively going to be no. I mean, that's the legal standard, but it, as a practical matter, it's going to be no, even if you can make arguments that yeah. seem like they ought to overcome the, the presumption of denial. Um, so that's probably what we have to look forward on the quantum computing side. So with that, we'll go to the lightning round um, and talk about some of our some of our final topics. But uh, and, and why don't we start first with the Russian countermeasures. So we've talked about kind of what the, the what we're doing in the US and in the UK and in the EU. What's going on? What are you seeing in Russia with respect to the Russian government and how it's treating, you know, Western companies that are doing business there? Um, well, mo most of the Western companies that we're advising are no longer doing business in Russia, or they're <laughs> trying to trying to exit um, that business. Uh, the main Russian countermeasure that we've seen relates to uh, the Sakhalin oil um, fields. Yep. Uh, so they, they, they effectively nationalized the joint venture ent entity and the, they've issued um, Novation um, agreements to all of the suppliers to Novate the contract from the, the, the JV entity over to this new entity that they've, they've formed. Um, now, as a matter of law, you, you, you can't force somebody to novate an agreement. You obviously under English law, you can. It has to be a consensual task. But if you but if you don't enter into that novation agreement, you can pretty much write off your ability to get paid for your goods or services that you've already supplied. So I think we're going to see more and more uh, entities uh, being effectively nationalised and run by the by the 
by the government of Russia. Um, yeah. And then with with them seeking to then novate contracts. Yeah, I mean, so so what I've seen from the U.S. side with Sakhalin, I, I agree. It 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 is kind of a you can't leave even if you want to leave or if you do we're basically just going to take it so you can leave but you yeah. can't leave with your property but it's I, I, I even apart from that over the last six months i mean one of the things that i think is really unusual compared to some of the other sanctions regimes that i've seen and kind of seen as companies have exited is just how difficult um not only the russian government but the sanctions generally have made it to get out yeah. so you know in my experience the i've had clients who want to leave um, in large part because it's become impossible to do a compliant business in Russia um, because the, the financial challenges are extreme. And what we're seeing here is that the, the U.S. companies that have subsidiaries in Russia, those subsidiaries are being forced to es essentially take payments from sanctioned banks or make payments through sanctioned banks in a way that, you know, you, you can't, if you want to stay, you've basically got to stay if you've got a U.S. presence by violating the law, which companies aren't excited to do. So they're trying to get out, but getting out has proved extremely difficult because, you know, not only, you know, the innovation is the kind of extreme version of it, but when companies um, that I've represented have tried to sell businesses, they've basically, you've got to get licenses and then you go to the Russian government and they impose so many conditions, you know, including well, I had one client that was told that if they wanted to sell, they had to sell to this person. And when they figured out who this person was, it turned out to be Putin's nephew. Yeah. And so, so it's, you know, and, and then, from the, the export controls are such that because the U.S. has so many export controls and they apply to transfers in country, if you actually sell to a Russian business, that is counted as a transfer. So you've got to look at every item in your shop that is subject to the EAR. And if it has a licensing requirement, you've either got to get a license, which you know, I haven't had a client try to do that yet. Or the thing that I've now advised on multiple occasions is you you take the sledgehammer approach because basically the, the BIS here has guidance that says that if an item is, you know, uh, classified as some sort of thing on the commerce control list with an ECCN, but if it's disabled, it becomes EAR 99. And so, you and since there's no licensing requirement for most EAR 99 goods, if you disable it by taking a sledgehammer to it and breaking it so that it's not functional, so that it's not part of the transfer, you can actually avoid those licensing requirements. But it's felt crazy to me to be, to say, you know, my considered legal advice is take a sledgehammer to your computer router so that you don't have to transfer it along with the sale because if you don't then this is potentially a transfer that would require a license um so it's just gotten i mean the russian countermeasures have made it really difficult to stay but i've never seen it so difficult to leave i mean you know like the the, the period that's kind of most recent for me was the the Iran period, when the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA and countries or companies were leaving Iran, it didn't seem that hard to leave. I mean, there yeah. were some issues and sometimes some contractual issues, but no, nobody was kind of told, you know, you can't leave or we'll take your property. At least I, I didn't have any clients in that, that position. In, in Russia, it seems like that's where everybody is. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think there's two issues there is the the countermeasures the russian the russian government is 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 taking and then there's the the fact that the the wind down periods under certainly under the uk licenses are just far too short yeah you know you're given 21 days to to, to wind down a, a 
substantial substantive transactions and you know in the real world it just doesn't it just isn't enough time yeah that's what and we had the same thing on the u.s side that some of the wind down periods were as short as like a week i'm not sure what you can do in a week i mean yeah. it's, if, unless you're actually kind of standing monitoring the ofac email list or monitoring their website i mean a lot of clients aren't even finding out about the wind down periods before they're they've expired yeah yeah so. absolutely can i ask um, you tim about um yeah, u.s secondary sanctions because um they were really a, an effective tool when it came to iran um, we over on the side of the Atlantic were, were, were terrified of them. With with Russia, as I understand it, there are um, U.S. secondary sanctions um, uh, available. Are they are they being utilized, or and do you think there is a risk of them being utilized? So so this I think kind of turns back to the first topic with respect to multilateralism. I mean, I've thought from reading the tea leaves that the deal that the Biden administration struck with with the NATO allies has been, which, you know, our secondary sanctions are very unpopular in most of the rest of the world because they essentially by definition say, here's a, here are some transactions that we have no interest in and no jurisdiction to regulate. And we're going to go basically regulate them anyway. Um, and I think that the bargaining chip that the Biden administration spent on the multilateralism was essentially telling the other countries, if you do your job, we're going to stay out of your business. We're not going to be imposing secondary sanctions. And one of the things that's really interesting is that you know, the main form of secondary sanctions on Russia is this CATSA law, the one that was passed in 2017, that, that actually has some very broad language, and it's mandatory that the administration shall impose sanctions upon par parties that are subject to sanctions that are targeted, that target the Russian Federation. I mean, it, that's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but mm. it's that broad. It's basically anybody who's sanctioned um, under laws or sanctions that apply to the Russian Federation. The administration has not used Katza as a as an authority for any of the executive orders that have come out in connection with the the new Russia sanctions, and has given guidance that suggests that Katza is really not an authority that they're relying on, and that they do not consider parties that are su sanctioned under these Russian sanctions as subject to these secondary sanctions provisions of CATSA, and they haven't shown any real appetite for imposing secondary sanctions. I still have some questions about whether they can do that, given that it's congressional language that is so broad and pretty clearly what should include sanctioned parties. But at least for now, the all the signals that we're seeing is that, it, that they are not imposing sanctions for transactions that don't involve U.S. persons or some sort of U.S. nexus. It's good. It's good to know. The reason I ask that is that what one of the things we've seen is with um, it's with the fifty percent rule. So your fifty percent rule applies at fifty percent. Um, our fifty percent rule is actually more than fifty percent, <laughs> and we do sometimes see a situation where there's a normally a coming subject to the sectoral sanctions that would be caught by the U.S. fifty percent rule, but is not caught. Uh, as a result of um, of their sharehold, their shareholding being right at fifty percent and not and not and not more than. Interesting. Yeah, and so I I would think in those circumstances, you know, if you have a obviously if there's a U.S. nexus transaction, you're going to have to abide by the by the U.S. rule. But if there's no U.S. nexus, I think the risk of secondary sanctions would be extremely small, if not you know zero, because I think the the risk of secondary sanctions right now for these new Russia sanctions in general is pretty small. Um, we haven't seen it, and the administration has not made much noise about it, and OFAC has not made much noise about it. Now, when they 
they if you look at their guidance it does point out that there are, there are these these um executive orders have material financial and technological support provisions that are in most of these executive orders and they apply to any person so any person who provides support to a designated party is subject to these provisions and could be subject to, to designation themselves and since that could apply to a non-us nexus transaction and occasionally has been that's a form of secondary sanction yeah. but not the form where you know in 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 cats 228 for example, where you set where there is a provision that says anyone who does a significant trend, who engages in a significant transaction with a sanctioned Russian party is, it, it, you know, shall be sanctioned themselves. Um, it's not. It's it's more the material so support provision is a lot more mushy and a lot less mandatory. But on the other hand, OFAC has some guidance that suggests that it could apply. So that so. It's not fair to say there are no secondary sanctions, but it really, the guidance suggests and the practice so far has suggested that that's really not what the U.S. is in the business of doing. All right. Well, um, why don't we turn to the last set two segments where we're going to make some predictions. And I think we've touched upon this already. I mean, I, I think you, you, you've predicted now, you're on record now suggesting that December 5th is really when these price caps are going to go into place. And I, I think that sounds about right. I mean, do you have any predictions beyond that in terms of where these energy sanctions might go beyond price caps? Or do you think price caps is really what we're going to see for the next six months in the energy sector? Yeah, it, I, it feels to me that it's the price caps is the, the last role of the energy sector yeah. sanctions. I mean, where else do they go? Um, right. it, almost, it would become a, almost a complete embargo, which uh, uh, we, we, I just don't see that there's any political appetite for a complete um, oil and gas embargo against Russia because yeah. of what it would do to the, the cost of oil. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's really the question in my mind is, you know, it, the price caps are going to come and they're going to be complicated and we'll see if they work. If they don't work, what's left? And I think embargo is the only thing left um, after the price caps come. And I think, it, you know, we'll see in probably six months to a year if the price caps don't work and uh, if, you know, God forbid, the, the war is still going on, um, whether or not there's appetite for a complete embargo because that is the only thing that's really left and it's yeah. been you know there's there's certainly countries that have called for that um but i i don't I, I think that that would be a real test to the multilateral approach if um if if embargo of russian energy was on the table yeah i just don't think it's a, a, a practically it could be it can be done i don't think the european unions by all of their efforts to um to store more are are in a position where they could um cut that supply off um now if it gets cut off itself right that's a different matter well and what about and you know i just don't know the numbers on this but what about if at the same time that the embargo went into place you know the the secondary sanctions and the primary sanctions were lifted against Iran and Venezuela because that could put a lot more oil back into the market. I mean, I, that it looked yeah. for a while like that's what the, the Biden administration was working towards. There's there's still, at least as I understand it, active negotiations with Venezuela about lifting at least some of the sanctions on the oil sector. And 
you know, the JCPOA, um, you know, we, for a while, Brian and I were doing segments almost every two weeks that talked about the JCPOA and it was still dead and it still seems to be dead, but there's always this talk of reviving it. And, and I, I think, you know, that if that were to happen, that to me anyway would at least marginally make an embargo more likely because just the supply would go up, but maybe yeah. it's not enough oil. I, no, I agree with you. I just don't see it happen. I yeah. think there might have been a prediction at one point on embargo that it might that it might happen, but I think the problem, as I understand it, is that um, Iran is no longer adhering to the terms of the yeah. of the of the agreement, um, and as such, I, I I I can't see that it unless there's a, a complete sea change. I can't see it happening. Well, and the time is so short. I mean, Iran, uh, apart from you know not adhering, which has also made it a deal impossible, Iran understandably wanted something that I think the U.S. can't really give them, which is some sort of guarantee that the U.S. won't back out again. Yeah. And and um, you know, at this point, with the U.S. presidential elections only about two years away, um, getting back into the nuclear deal, which would require actually probably a lot more implementation time for Iran since they are a lot closer to um, you know, a nuclear weapon, as I understand it. So they'd have a lot more to do to, to disable that capability and then verify it. Um, it just seems like we're out of time, in my yeah. view. Like, I, I can't imagine entering into the, a new JCPOA a year before the US presidential elections and then potentially having the US back out almost as soon as it's implemented. Yeah. Um, finally, financial institution sanctions. I mean, they're already pretty strict with respect to Russia. Do you see them going anywhere from here? I mean, there's still plenty of Russian banks that aren't on the SDN list, but it seems like there's so many major players in the disabling of the SWIFT system with respect to those banks. I, I, I have a hard time seeing further sanctions on this, but if we do go towards a full embargo, you could see going down that road. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's really interesting. I think the uh, the ban on SWIFT was was significant, um, but there are you see there's a, there's an awful lot of of Russian banks. There are also European banks in uh, in in Moscow who are operating quite freely. It's actually fairly easy to um, get paid uh, in and out of of Russia through the banking system. Yeah. Um, uh, so I would have thought if there is going to be a tightening, there'll be that's where it might be. There'll be more more banks added to the to the list, um, uh, and more entities added to the list. I, I think we're going to get to stage where it's 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 just more uh, more designations, uh, more listings uh, to to slowly make it um, more difficult. Yeah, no, I think that sounds right to me as well because I agree with you. It is, you know. It, having seen kind of how the financial system sanctions and just in practice work with respect to Iran, the difference between trying to do banking in and out of Iran and trying to do banking in and out of Russia is like night and day, even though we have, you know, the, the probably the, what, what everybody would agree is the toughest part of these sanctions are targeting the Russian financial sector. But there's so many banks that aren't on the SDN list and there's so many banks that, um, you know, that you're still allowed to do business with, that it, it, it isn't, you have to be more careful with Russia now because you have to actually map out your payment chain so that you don't inadvertently get something blocked, but it's not that hard to do. And yeah. it is, with Iran, it's basically impossible. Yeah. So, but we'll see. Well, 
thank you for coming on the show, uh, Tom. I think you, this was your second time, and it's great to have you back. Um, and you know, if you've got any final comments, we, we will we will be glad to hear them, and and then we'll look forward to the next time we talk. Well, it's um, a pleasure. Thank you for getting me back on, uh, and Barbara, I do love listening to your show. Uh, I, I think keep an eye out for enforcement and asset seizures. There was a, um, a raid a couple of days ago in, in Germany across uh, several cities uh, targeting um, Mr. Uzmanov's uh, properties and assets. Uh, and I think we're going to see more activity like that um, uh, in the UK and, and, and Germany. Agree. Enforcement is coming. Yeah. Thanks, is. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody, and stay sanctions free. Indeed. This podcast was produced by HeartCast Media.